Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We look at many different facets of health, the spiritual, and today we're going to look a little more into AI and longevity and what we can do to uh, pro- prolong our lives in a very healthy way. What um, scientific uh, discoveries are on the horizon, and, and what can we expect from healthcare in the future? So today we have a guest, David Wood, who's one of the pioneers of the smartphone industry, and now an internationally renowned futurist writer, educator, consultant, and speaker. He's the chair of the London Futurist, and he's organized and hosted over 300 public meetings since March 2008 on futurist and techno-progressive topics. These are very interesting, very informative, and very lively. He recently launched the London Futurist podcast with the theme Anticipating and Managing the Exponential Impact. He's a member of the London Futurist, which exceeds 9,000 of the world's leading future-oriented meetup. As the principal independent futurist consultant see, and publisher of Delta Wisdom, David helps his clients around the world to anticipate and manage the dramatic impact of rapidly changing technology on human individuals and communities. This includes the NBIC technologies, which means nanotech, biotech, infotech, and cognotech, of the fourth industrial revolution and the rapid emergence of AGI, which stands for artificial general intelligence, and the resulting singularity. Previously, he spent 25 years designing, implementing, and trailblazing the use of smartphone devices, including 10 years pioneering the PDA manufacturer Poseidon PLC. And also, 10 more uh, with smartphone operating systems with Symbian Limited, which he co-founded in 1998. At different times, he's had different executive responsibility at Psyon and Symbian, including software development, technical consulting, partnering, and ecosystem management and research and innovation. By 2012, his software for UI and application frameworks has been included in the 500 million smartphones from companies such as Nokia, Sony Ericsson, Samsung, Motorola, LG, Panasonic, Sharp, and Fiatsu. From 2010 to 13, he was a technologically planning lead of Accenture Mobility, where he's co-led their Mobility Health Business Initiative. He's written many books Uh, The most recent, which we will touch on today, is Death of Death, which he co-wrote with Jose Cordero. His previous books include Singularity Principles, Anticipating and Managing Cataclysmically Disruptive Technology, Vital Foresight, also Smartphones and Beyond, The Abolition of Aging, Sustainable Superabundance and Transcending Politics, which we discussed previously on this show. He's got a triple first-class mathematics degree from Cambridge and undertook doctoral research in the philosophy of science. Also, he has an honorary doctorate of science from Westminster University. So, welcome. Welcome. 
It's a real pleasure to be on the show, Susan. That was quite a mouthful. I must compress my biography for the future. Well, there's a lot in it, so I wouldn't know how to start compressing that. So what got you on your path to write your most recent book, The Death of Death? Tell us a little bit about it. It's the awareness that we are standing at a wonderful possibility, a dividing line between the last mortal generation and fairly soon the first immortal generation. And people have aspired to leaving behind death throughout history, but until recently, it's just been a fantasy. It's been a mythical possibility, a philosophical question. But now, it's my conviction, that it's an engineering possibility that we will be able to take advantage of relatively new technologies, including some that are still at an early stage of development, in order to systematically undo all the damage of aging. And so we can defeat death. This is intriguing. So how do we defeat death and how do we um, improve the various systems in us to prolong our life in a healthy way? Well, actually, we've been defeating death in some ways since the beginning of medicine. We haven't accepted everything that nature has thrown at us in the way of infections. We've had lots of people dying for most of history due to the terrible Diseases of infection, such as tuberculosis and malaria, pneumonia and influenza, among many others. And for most of history, there was nothing much that could be done about that. However, in the last 200 years or so, we at last understood that these diseases weren't just the playthings of the gods. They weren't just unfortunate, inexplicable things, things that somehow flew over the invisible vapors, they were caused by actual microorganisms. And if we tidied up our hygiene in the first place, and if we applied various medical procedures, such as vaccinations and antibiotics, we could significantly reduce the likelihood of people dying from these infectious diseases. And as a result, we have pushed back the likelihood of death many decades in the average life so for most of history, the average life expectancy was somewhere around 30 or possibly 40. Occasionally, individuals could live much longer. There were people living to perhaps 100 years old, even in quite ancient times, but they were very much in the minority. But more recently, the average life expectancy has shot up around the world to more than 70. I think it's 72 at the last count or something like that. So we have pushed back death some way. But still, there are many other causes of death which we have little ways of combating, including cancer, dementia, heart disease, things that are triggered by problems with our metabolism, triggered by diabetes, and so forth. And the good news is that we are understanding these things more fully. And in particular, we are understanding the underlying causes of these diseases. And the main underlying cause of all these things, you want to know what's the most likely cause of somebody having lung cancer, for example. You might think, oh, the biggest determinant of lung cancer is that somebody smokes. Well, an even bigger determinant of whether they have lung cancer is how old they are, because aging diminishes so many aspects of our biology. So if we can have a similar 
revolution as what happened about 100 or 200 years ago over the last two centuries, a revolution in the treatment of infectious diseases. A similar revolution is at hand in how we deal with uh, various changes in our body that we collectively call aging. And when we undo these, suddenly the likelihood of anybody dying of cancer or heart disease or dementia will be very significantly reduced. And how do we undo these? I mean, in this program, we're looking at optimal health and anti-aging and extending our health and extending our lifespan in a healthy way. Uh, this is one of the main things we one of the main things we look at. So how do we do this? We talk in the book, The Death of Death, about three bridges. This wasn't an idea that Jose Luis Cordero and myself came up with. It's an idea that has been written about previously by writers such as Ray Kurzweil and Terry Grossman. But we think it's a fine idea. The first bridge is that there are things we can do today to improve our life expectancy, perhaps by five or ten or even more years. And simplistically, there are the kinds of good advice that the best of our great-grandmothers might have told us, although the devil's in the details. There are things like ensuring we get good sleep, ensuring we have good exercise, ensuring we have a positive social life, ensuring also that we don't eat too much or don't eat too much of the wrong kinds of food. And so there's a whole bunch of things that can be done, which I'm sure many of your other guests will talk to you in your programs. I'm not going to say so much about that because I think that's reasonably well understood. But that will only take us so far. And people who practice all these best policies may get 5, 10, 15 extra years of life. But on the whole, they will still succumb to aging in due course. So what I want to talk about is not that first bridge, but the second and third bridges. And the second bridge is when we can apply revolutions in biotech in order to change the accumulation of damage in our bodies at the cellular and intercellular levels. And also, in due course, at the third level, the third bridge, we will apply not just biotech, but also nanotech. That's more sophisticated synthetic little bots which can travel through the body and can more systematically undo the damage using things far beyond what's possible by biology alone. But in order to live long enough to take advantage of these second and third bridges, we need to have a good quality of life here and now, which is why the advice that is mainly in your show is so useful and so important. So tell us more about these second and third bridges and what we can look forward to. So the second bridge, as I said, is mainly using biological mechanisms augmented by human ingenuity in order to undo the various categories of damage and just as the idea of solving infections needed to be turned into tangible engineering realities by tools such as better microscopes better preparations of vaccinations better methods for analyzing what was actually going on in somebody's bodies in other words that fine high-level idea that infections are caused by microorganisms needed to be turned into tangible treatments in the same way we need to 
go at least one level deeper into understanding what's actually happening when we say cells are aging or organs are aging. And there are various classifications of that. And the classification I best like is a sevenfold classification that's due to the biogerontologist Aubrey de Grey, who studied at Cambridge and is now heading a foundation called the LEV Foundation, Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation. And full disclosure, I sit on the board of that, and indeed I have a staff role there too as executive director. So you might call me biased, but I have to say the reason I have taken that role, the reason I have given up many of my other responsibilities is I assess this framework as being highly insightful, highly relevant, and likely to lead to a whole bunch of breakthroughs. So this analysis looks at damage consisting of seven categories. I'm not going to go through all seven now, but I can touch on some. One of them is that when we are younger and our cells go wrong for whatever reason, our body's pretty good at recycling. So these senescent cells are quickly absorbed by the immune system and the contents are recycled and no damage is done. But as we get older, these senescent cells tend to hang around, causing inflammation, causing all kinds of second level and third level effects. So an approach to dealing with this is to find ways to trigger an improvement in the body's own recycling mechanisms to revitalize these recycling mechanisms so that the senescent cells no longer accumulate but are systematically freed again. So that's an approach often called senolytics, an approach to deal with these senescent cells. That's damage category one. A second category of damage is that our stem cells gradually weaken over our lives when we are young our stem cells are very good at regenerating things like our blood, our skin, and so forth. But over time, they tend to weaken, and our body's ability to regenerate goes down. Well, that can be addressed by a whole bunch of stem cell therapies. So in the Longevity Escape Foundation, LEV Foundation, we're very interested in promoting intelligent improvements to stem cell therapies. So that's damage type two, uh, decline in the availability of cells, too few cells of various types and how it can be addressed by various uh, stem cell treatments in which we can take cells out of your own body and we can uh, improve them and enhance them and then feed them back into the body. So that's type two and so on for another five types of damage. And I don't want to be glib here. I don't want to assume or give the impression that dealing with these damage types is easy. On the contrary, it will be the probably the hardest thing humanity has ever done. But it is such an important and worthwhile thing to do because if we can stop people having an accumulation of damage in their bodies, it lessens the likelihood of the onset of chronic diseases, which are so terrible for their impact when people's brains stop working properly, when their mobility reduces, when they become incontinent and weak in other ways. It's a terrible decline. And although sometimes people try to romanticize the perceived beauty of aging, and although there is a wisdom, of course, to more years being spent on the earth, there are many drawbacks to it too, including huge financial drawbacks with additional costs incurred by health services around the world. So if we can avoid that, if we can hurry up with the treatments that we have envisioned, then there is a great 
great prize to be had, an economic prize to be sure, but also a wonderful humanitarian prize with people no longer needing to die, to shuffle off their mortal coil and cease to be part of society, missing out on all the opportunities as their grandchildren grow and so on. This is very, very interesting. I would like to comment that there's a lot of people working on stem cells, and they are miraculous. Some stem cells are you know, not formed to a particular type, and they can go to certain places and rebuild things. So this is underway, and people are using it. Um, I, well, on the senescence, what, I mean, uh, this is very interesting, so I certainly want to continue talking about uh, uh, Andre de Grey's work. So on the senescence of cells, I mean, so there's something called autophagy, where you eat, gobble up the garbage that's kind of left, and there's certain ways to address that for the audience, such as intermittent fasting, etc. But what other ways is Dr. DeGray looking at to help with the senescent cells? Well, on the autophagy and intermittent fasting, that's something I practice myself. Most weeks I only eat two days in a week at wow. the full level, as it were, and the other five days I have something like 600 to 800 calories of carefully prepared uh, food, so that it's got all the essential nutrients and minerals in it, but much fewer calories. So I've been doing that for about uh, 10 years now, and uh, I think it does help uh, in all kinds of ways for my health. But I, we shouldn't just be restricted to what we can do by today's biology. We should look at a whole host of other approaches. And the good news is it's not just one company who's looking at senolytic possibilities now. Once upon a time, it was a weird fringe idea. Aubrey de Grey's been talking about it for nearly 20 years. I mean, increasingly, there are other companies who are trying a variety of different senolytic approaches. So Hence, the, there are spin-outs from Aubrey de Grey's previous foundation, which is the Sense Research Foundation, which are trying various senolytic approaches. And it's not just one, there's a whole host of things. It's not like there's not just one antibiotic, there's not just one possible mechanism for vaccination. And so in a similar way, we're not quite sure what the best mechanisms are for senolytics, but there's a variety of companies now experimenting, and that's the good news. Well, one thing that is out there is uh, Victor Longo's uh, uh, fasting mimicking diet where you do it five days like four times a year and he provides a diet and that really gives you a jump start in your health and adds years to your life but I just am interesting in what I mean you know I'm limited because I'm kind of in the paradigm that I'm in and so I'm having trouble extrapolating to what some of these new technologies might be that these companies are working on do you have anything you can tell us about that well, a lot of it may simply be small molecules, things that we can take through the mouth as pills and they'll find their way to the relevant parts of the bodies. That is one mechanism that is uh, potentially encouraging. Some of it may need to be more carefully targeted and there are a whole host of delivery mechanisms that people are exploring. Some of it might be done by gene therapy, which means that you can reprogram a part of your DNA in order to be more aggressive in turning on the proteins that would be involved in this recycling. That's been done in some experiments with mice. 
Repro genetic reprogramming on the fly is, of course, an expensive proposition, so it's not likely to be the solution that works at scale. But through various experiments, we can see what works, especially in mice. There have been experiments with senolytics in mice going back to around 2011, 2012, which have seen significant enhancements to lifespan as a result of these senolytic interventions, uh, reprogramming them uh, in their DNA. So once we understand how that works, then we can zoom in more closely and we can find ways to mimic it by introducing perhaps small molecules or perhaps biologics of various sorts as well, which might be put into the blood or injected into various parts of the body. Over time, I think we're going to find more and more easy mechanisms to share these treatments and therapies. At first, it might be a bit awkward, but that's how medicine has often happened. I was reading just uh, a couple of days ago about the history of the pacemaker. Nowadays, we have very small little uh, objects that get inserted and which deliver jolts of electricity to the heart. In the beginning, they were massive things. They were difficult and awkward. The surgery was difficult and awkward. And you could hardly imagine the difference between uh, what was done early in pacemaker theories, uh, pacemaker experiments, pacemaker treatments, and what we have now. I think in the same way, many of these rejuvenation uh, therapies, we might initially uh, involve quite complicated procedures, expensive procedures, but over time we will find ways to optimize and reduce the invasiveness and reduce the costs it's like the cell phone used to be humongous and big and it's getting smaller and smaller. But I've also heard about like in sickle cell disease, uh, which uh, can be, you know, certainly shortened life, that certain gene changes uh, did prolong the life and made somebody healthier and longer life. And then there was a, something I saw that, that was by studying puppies that no longer their neurons weren't working, that that, that that had some gene change. It allowed people to walk. So it sounds like they're already experimenting with inserting genes and changing them to prolong lives or make them more comfortable. The treatments for sickle cell disease is one of the miracles of the modern medicine. It's an excruciating disease when people have, I think it's two recessive genes, which if you only had one of these recessive genes, it gives you protection against malaria. If you get both of them, then the shape of the one of the blood cell molecules is just not right, and it can be a terrible disease. Well, there are, for the last 10 years almost, I think, uh, treatments that can change how uh, people say, blood cells work and people who benefit from this are full of praise for it it's not just that they will live longer it's that their quality of life is so much better as a result so that shows what can be done yeah painful it's extremely painful disease exactly so so this is an example that these treatments aren't just about extending lifespan they are about extending health span and the two will go together if done right well, I want to make sure I get the message out that's important to you. So, but I'm also interested in what uh, some of the other the other five categories of Audrey de Grey's work. Um, so, if you could discuss those more, or you can go on to something that you feel would be more useful to the audience. 
Well, we should touch on not just genetic reprogramming, but epigenetic reprogramming, which is a booming area. And it recognizes a different kind of damage that happens inside our cells as we age, which is that our DNA doesn't itself change. Well, that is one mode of a, a problem. It does change. But the DNA gets, in a sense, altered by having chemical little molecules called methyls, that's a carbon of three hydrogens, attached to various parts of the DNA, which then mean that the genes there no longer are active in cells. So nearly every cell in the body has the same DNA, but what that DNA does in different cells in the body differs from cell to cell. So a skin cell has this DNA generating the proteins appropriate for skin. Our kidney cells has DNA generating their proteins appropriate for kidney and so on. And the reason that the different cells generate different proteins in all the different cells is they are epigenetically marked with these methyl groups differently from uh, cell to, to cell. They're also folded up in slightly different ways. The spooling in how they wrap is altered. And what happens as we age is some of these methyl tags get attached in the wrong places. Other changes happen in our epigenetics as well. And therefore, the cells no longer work exactly as they're meant to do in each. Uh, the, the DNA no longer works as it's meant to do in each of the cells in our body. For example, our skin cells may start producing proteins appropriate for kidney cells instead and vice versa. But the remarkable thing is that there is now a set of techniques applying three of the so-called Yamanaka factors, which are uh, proteins or transcription factors, which have been studied by the Japanese scientist who subsequently won a Nobel Prize in, I think, 2012, or shared the Nobel Prize in biology for his uh, discovery that applying these factors would undo the epigenetic aging and that would allow the cells to therefore rejuvenate. And it's complicated because if you do it too much, you will reset the age of the cell all the way back into its pluripotent stem cell nature. So it will actually forget that it's a skin cell or it will forget that it's a kidney cell. It will just become one of these cells we talked about in the very beginning that could turn into everything. But that's a problem because we don't want these pluripotent stem cells replacing uh, functional cells. So you have to do it the right amount, but increasingly people are finding ways to do that. And I can mention two groups of people who are researching that. One is the renowned Australian-American biologist, David Sinclair, who has a lab at Harvard. He has written a whole book on much of this subject, which I think people will be interested to read if they're not familiar with it already. I forget the name of the book off the top of my head, but if you look for David Sinclair, and you'll find he has lots of videos on this as, as well as podcast episodes. So I think this is showing lots of promise. The point is that when these cells are epigenetically reprogrammed into a younger state, it doesn't just alter that part of somebody's biology. It also seems to have a knock-on effect due to crosstalk between the different kinds of damage. So when you rejuvenate some of the biological mechanisms, the other types of damage tend to get improved as well. Now, he's not the only one who's researching this. Just as famously, there is a new company 
called Altos Labs. I say new, they've been around for a few years now. They've been funded by a set of, people say, billionaire donors, investors, including, people say, Jeff Bezos, one of the world's richest men. And Altos Labs is looking at wider use of this epigenetic reprogramming. And they have taken their Japanese researcher, I mentioned Shinya Yamanaka, onto their staff as an honorary advisor. He is still, to be clear, an independent academic, but he is offering advice. So that's a third way in which damage is being undone. We can also talk about mitochondrial problems. So it's a, another type of damage that exists in our biology. Mitochondria are these small little energy power sources in our cells. And as we age, they tend to become less effective. And the question is, well, how can we rejuvenate these? Otherwise, we get weaker and our fitness goes down. And of course, the less fit we are, the more prone we are to all kinds of other damage. There's an escalation here, as with all the other types of damage. Well, Aubrey de Grey has been looking at a variety of mechanisms to have our mitochondria regenerated or improved. And one of the most interesting things I saw recently, which was at a conference in Dublin uh, in August, the Longevity Summit Dublin, there was a mechanism to have more powerful mitochondria introduced into people's bodies in a small little thing which was called a mitlet, M-I-T-L-E-T, in which the mitochondria were included in a small little uh, object, less than the size of a cell, which could be uh, provided into the body, and then it would uh, travel around the body and be absorbed via a clever mechanism into cells and therefore allow these more powerful mitochondria to exist in the cells. And then via a mechanism people sometimes call molecular drive, the more powerful mitochondria will, over time, reproduce and replace the weaker, more tired ones. So that's another example of the remarkable possibilities. Now, it's more important, I guess, to step back and just say what's going on here is the application of engineering principles backed by data, backed by intelligence, to do things which in some ways are inspired by nature because we can learn from creatures that live a long time without aging, we can learn from humans who, in some cases, live a long time with much reduced aging. In both cases, we can learn from these things, learn from these phenomena, but we can also go beyond what nature does by applying more intelligence of all sorts, that our individual human intelligence, our collaborative intelligence, which is working in ways as never before due to mechanisms for online collaboration and sharing of information and insights, and increasingly, and this, I think, is going to make the biggest difference of all when we are supplemented with our human intelligence by artificial intelligence, which is on the point of understanding biology in many ways, at least as well as we humans do. And as AI becomes more powerful, it won't just overtake humans in terms of its creativity, in terms of its ability to calculate mathematics, in terms of its ability to play well in games of skill, Increasingly, it's going to come up with new insights in our biological world. 
that I, I want the AI is one of the topics I wanted to get to. But before we went there, I was just curious what all seven of Audrey de Grey's categories are. You mentioned senescence, which is what do you do with fragments of dying cells? Because if they hang around, you get inflammation and oxidative stress. Stem cells, which is heavily being used in research, which is fascinating. Epigenetics, which just means we can turn certain genes on. Mitochondria, which are a powerhouse and, you know, that loses ability over time what are the other three categories that uh well, we should mention the damage in in the extracellular matrix that's okay. when the contents between cells becomes uh, dysfunctional they may become sticky they may become a, a basically old so ways to undo that damage is uh, very important then there are other damage inside cells, which are misfolded proteins. So a breakdown in what people call proteostasis. And if I remember the last one, it's probably cells not running out of cells, not having too few cells, but having too many cells, which is, of course, the root cause of cancer. When cells that are meant to stay put instead multiply far too much. So that's a different kind of damage. And so each of these seven mechanisms, I may not have covered them all exactly right. I advise people to take the time to read more carefully what's online. Each of them, importantly, has a variety of set of possible ways to reprogram or reverse or repair the damage. And it's not yet clear which of these methods will be more successful, but we have lots at our disposal. And I am encouraging people to explore fully all these possibilities in case their own research or their donations or their just asking questions might spark new insights and new progress in, so that we have better methods to deal with these types of damage. That is so interesting. I would just like to add a little bit on misfolding proteins. That's one of the things that uh, gets involved in de- various kinds of dementia if they fold the wrong way. And uh, it's it's been linked to dementia. So how these proteins fold is extremely important. So AI to the common person on the street sounds pretty scary. Imagine people watching us and monitoring us and it's in our home and whatever. So uh, you know, how about helping us dispel that concept and tell us how it can be used in health and our general welfare? I don't want to dispel the fear completely because I think we ought to be careful with any powerful tool because there are possibilities of misusing it. Fire needs to be treated with respect. Electricity needs to be treated with respect. Nuclear power needs to be treated with a lot of respect, and AI also needs to be treated with respect. So we should be cautious about turning over too many parts of our society to AI algorithms. You know, if we are too easily allowing algorithms to determine which news we listen to, what programs we watch, we will lose out on things. So we have to be careful and cautious about fake news and a software that is written to manipulate us, maybe to make us buy things that in our right mind we wouldn't buy, or possibly software to make us vote for people that in our right mind we wouldn't conceive of voting for. So there are problems there, and I don't want to be a, 
Pollyanna and saying there are oh, good I things about that. AI and therefore all kinds of things about AI are good. I love that. My, my philosophy is anything can be used for good or bad, be it the atom, be it um, the, you know, electricity, um, AI. I, I love that approach and I share it because nothing's inherently good or bad, but there's a lot of concern about how this can be misused. But okay, so tell us some of the positive use and how it can help us in our lives and health. So let's consider the folding of proteins. We talked about the misfolding of proteins, which is a, an issue, but... There's a simpler question, which is if you specify a protein, which is a long chain made up of smaller molecules called amino acids, there are, I think, 20 amino acids that occur in the human body. Some people say 22 when you count another couple of things. And you can imagine that there are vast numbers of combinations of proteins depending on how you string these 20 different amino acids together into long chains. Well, they don't remain as long chains as they are created. They fold up in three dimensions depending on the molecular pressures, attractions, repulsions, and so on. And their biological properties, their interactions with medicines, their propensity to diseases, all depends on that three-dimensional shape. But we haven't been able to calculate in advance until recently how these molecules will fold up. And it's been a long-standing problem. It was stated first, I think, more than 60 years ago. And until recently, somebody could get a PhD in biochemistry by spending the entire three years working out the actual three-dimensional shape of an individual, just one protein. Well, now, thanks to the application of deep learning by Google's DeepMind team, there is a software called AlphaFold, which is able to figure out in advance, given the specification of any protein in terms of the constituent amino acids, it's able to work out with a high degree of probability what that amino, what the protein will fold into. And therefore, it makes it easier to consider what its biochemical properties will be. And that doesn't solve all the problems, of course, in proteins, by no means, but it's a huge step forward. So that's one example. We might also talk about the use of AI to help the discovery and testing of drugs. And this is a key point because, sadly, if you go back to the 1950s, from the 1950s till the present time, roughly every eight years, the amount of money and time it's required to develop a new drug doubles every eight years. So it's being more expensive in real terms and it's taking longer in real terms to bring new drugs to the market. There's a whole host of reasons why that is the case. Some people say we found all the easy pickings. Other people say we are more cautious than before in previous times about checking for safety. But whatever the cause, it's a major problem that most drugs do not pass through all the testing phases. And huge amounts of money, therefore, goes nowhere. So can we use AI to improve this process? And it turns out, yes, we can. And there are at least three different parts in that process where AI can assist. First of all, there is the suggestion of targets. And the target is the part of a complicated biochemical uh, process in, where a disease is involved, perhaps, which might be interfered with by an appropriate small molecule. So you've got to figure out what you're going to try and pick on, first of all, 
as the point of this disease process that you're going to change or possibly a repair mechanism which is dysfunctional that you're going to enhance by the introduction of a small molecule. So first of all, there's coming up with an, an appropriate target. Secondly, there's a question as well. You know what the target is you'd like to consider. What therefore would be the shape of the small molecule that should fit in and uh, cause that intended effect? And now we have AIs that are able to invent whole new molecules, molecules that have never been considered before, but the AI is able to say, right, if you're targeting this target, I suggest this molecule. And it's not just a case of picking a molecule that's already known. Often it's a case of coming up with a brand new molecule. And this is similar to what generative AIs do in coming up with brand new pictures. You know, you can ask an AI, draw me a picture with such and such and such and such and such and such something that's never been uh, considered before. And often these AIs, like Midjourney or DALI, will come up with some stunning pictures. And sometimes there's bugs in them. Sometimes you get hands with six fingers or people with three legs or whatever. But if you check, you can often, after uh, going through some validation, come up with some very good pictures. Well, in the same way, these new AIs can come up with drugs and then, of course, it's up to humans to verify that the drugs indeed have the right target interactions. And so that's a way of coming up with new drug candidates. And then the third thing is, well, of course, they've still got to go through the validation and verification process. But AI might be able to predict in advance which drugs are more likely, given the results of phase one and phase two trials, which drugs are more likely to pass through phase three. Now, how can it do that? You might ask, well, it is able to learn. It's able to spot patterns, often in quite mysterious and profound ways. So increasingly, AI systems are suggesting that out of a portfolio of different drugs, each of which have come through phase one and phase two successfully, which proportion of them are the ones that should have more money spent on them on phase three, and which one should probably be dropped because they are less likely to succeed. So these are three ways in which AI can accelerate the very important process of discovering and validating new drugs. Wow, even though I'm an electrical engineer by training, um, this is beyond anything that I can even imagine. It's just b beyond anything I can comprehend. And it I is happening. Uh, if you look at the work of a company in silico medicine, for example, which is headed by Alex Zafaronkov, a fascinating entrepreneur. They are doing all three of the things which I have just mentioned, and they're by no means the only companies doing it. Well, I'm, <laughs> this MIT electrical engineer just feels like she's left behind in the dust. It's just beyond what I can imagine. But to implement such a system, you're going to have, have to have a way to assess each of these systems so you know where you want to put your attention or how much attention in each of the seven areas. So I guess that's something they're just going to come up with. Well, I think we should let 100 flowers bloom, to quote uh, a well-known biochemist, Mao Zedong. You know, <laughs> let's uh, try different approaches. And it may well be that some of them when they undo their own kind of damage that they're designed to deal with, they will have the side effect of dealing with other types of damage as well. And this is the claim that people make, for example, for the epigenetic reprogramming. 
other people make the same claim for a different kind of damage that we haven't covered because it's not part of what Aubrey de Grey lists as the seven types of damage, but other people do include it, which is the shortening of telomeres at the end of chromosomes. So as your cells divide, the chromosomes get copied, but they're not copied entirely right to the tips. At the tips, there's something called a telomere, and each time the cell divides, these telomeres get shorter by default. And once they've been divided a certain number of times, people call it the Hayflick limit, referring to Leonard Hayflick, the biologist who first discovered this. Then the cells can no longer divide, and they are aged. Various people say, well, we can undo that by inducing the telomeres to be longer again by using a natural mechanism called telomerase, which is an enzyme which is used in the body some of the time. For example, when a stem cell divides, the telomeres tend to be extended all the way by the application of telomerase. And so by applying more telomerase, there is the idea that the, the cells will be able to replicate more often. And people who believe in this as the most important type of damage to address have the confidence that when cells have their telomeres extended, it won't just be that aspect of aging that improves, but the cells will be more active right across the board, and other measurements of aging will diminish as well. Now, we don't know in advance. It's still uh, an open question, so I advocate a, plura a plurality. Not getting that word out properly, a plurality of different approaches rather than a singular focus on just one idea. Uh, I don't mind individual people being dogmatic or focused, that's great, so long as the community as a whole is able to explore lots of different ways. And keeping an open mind, doing the scientific research, figuring out which of these interventions have wide implications and which of them are disappointingly narrow in their implications. So let's keep doing the research which sadly costs a lot of money. And so it is important that governments, uh, pharmaceuticals and philanthropists in their own ways all apply money in support of these key experiments. And then we'll watch what happens and then we'll know where to double down on the research and exploration. This is so interesting. I was just re reading recently on things that extend the telomeres. It's something called TA65. They've been claiming for at least five years they do that, but they're really highly priced. So this is interesting. We probably have about four or five minutes left, so I would like you to address what you think is important. Um, you know, what do you think is most, what messages do you really want the audience to come away with? So this possibility is within our grasp, provided we collectively apply more of our intelligence and other resources to it. And what's holding up this collective project is often what's in people's minds, because we are still affected by what we learned when we're growing up, which is that we should accept aging and death as natural and somehow beautiful, and that if we try to fight against aging and death, then we are somehow selfish or immature or naive. Now, for most of history, that probably was good advice. You know, we shouldn't get our hopes up that aging might be solved because for most of history, that wasn't a possibility, but now it is. So now people need to change their minds about the desirability of leaving behind aging and death. 
And so a lot of what I do is not just talking about the scientific possibility, but also talking about the moral desirability too. That the point of life is not to learn how to die, which some philosophers will say. The point of life is to live fully, to live collaboratively, to live sustainably, but to live in a sustainable abundance. And that involves staying alive. And there's nothing to be ashamed of for wanting to stay alive. So more and more people need to bound together and say, yeah, let's abolish aging. Let's see the death of death. Let's not have death defeat us. Let's instead defeat death. Uh, What about the implications of having too many people? I mean, obviously, if people are healthy, we don't have to put resources on, you know, I mean, most of the costs in healthcare in the U.S. are in the final six months or just trying to help them hang on to what life is left. But what about overcrowding and uh, will there be enough work for them, et cetera? What about those issues? So these are good questions, and I don't want to rush answers. These answers are covered in lots of people's books. You can certainly find answers in The Death of Death. Uh, perhaps longer answers in one of my earlier books, The Abolition of Aging. In terms of how many people the earth can sustain, it all depends on what kind of lives we are living. And I think we can live rich lives, wonderful lives, but lives that are much more ecologically sustainable. If, for example, we stop eating meat that is grown on cows that eat crops that occupy a large part of the land mass. So we give over lots of land to these crops uh, before we feed them to cows and other uh, creatures and before we slaughter them. There's all kinds of things wrong with that process. And if we apply some of the same synthetic biology techniques to how we create food, we can create so-called cultivated meat or lab-grown meat. Meat which will in many ways be healthier. Meat which will have a much lower... Oh, that scares me. I'll have to disagree with you on it being healthier, but continue. Well, we are still at earlier days. So we can have meat that doesn't have to have all kinds of antiviruses in it. Most of the cows and cattle and the chickens and so on have to be heavily dosed with antibiotics. And if we grow them in a cleaner environment, there won't need to be any such antibiotics. Absolutely. There shouldn't be antibiotics, hormones, and insecticides in our meat. That is one thing that does make us sick. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have to do this carefully. We'll probably get it, we might get it wrong the first few times. We have to learn more. But I'm sure we can grow in the end meat that is delicious, but also healthier and much more sustainable for the planet. So in general, we can't have more people. We can have people even living more energy-intensive lives. The people who are currently in Africa and other developing countries who don't use so much energy, it's in their rights to have uh, more energy, more travel. But we will all do it in a more sustainable way with greener Uh, changes in our lives by applying some of the same biotechnological breakthroughs that will be improving our individual health. So I don't want to come across as glib about this. There are major issues with uh, dealing with climate change, which we are not, as a global civilization, doing enough about. 
But the solution to climate change is absolutely not to have more people aging and dying. The solution instead is to adopt uh, better technology more quickly and to hurry that up, I would say, with things like carbon taxes and other carbon systems. Okay. Um, uh, There's three minutes left, so you can say some final words to the audience and let people know how to get a hold of you and your books and your various, uh, you know, you've got information on LinkedIn and various places. So, uh, you know, so you can give us that information now. And some people, final words. People can find me on X, it used to be known as Twitter. Let's see what the name is by the time the show comes out. It might have migrated again. I jest. Uh, you can find me there as DW2. That's the number two. You can find me on LinkedIn if you search for David Wood Futurist. There are several other David Woods around. So uh, look for me with the Futurist or smartphones in the bio. You can find my books by searching for me on Amazon, or you can find them on my Delta Wisdom website. Delta Wisdom is the publishing site that I use myself, deltawisdom.com, where you'll also find details about how to engage me if you wish to come along and give a presentation to a group of people, which is usually a provocation about what might happen if we are smart enough to grasp the possibilities, if we are connected enough to get our act overall together. He also has a meetup group on the Futurist, so people can find that. And many of his programs are virtuals, uh, so or at least some of them are. So that's another way to connect with him and see what he's up to. This has been very interesting because I just feel very limited just being on this flat planet here, um, and not. Gra- I mean, I you know, understand all the categories and all the and the health and the medicine, but the how to extrapolate that. And into things I can't imagine. This is fascinating to me. And how we can, you know, do this together and live happier, healthier, uh, more wonderful lives. It's just very fascinating. It's something I know very little about. So I want to thank you. So I want the audience to share this information, research it, uh, share it with your friends. Uh, The first step is to take the various healthy steps that we've mentioned today and on other programs about getting good sleep and exercise and dealing with stress and eating healthy, organic, etc., color the rainbow, doing those things in the interim. But Knowing what's in the future is very interesting. So share this with your friends, your physician, and above all, be well. Absolutely. And we can build a much better future together for us as individuals, as family, and for the whole human society. I love that, and I love your approach. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.